Hello, and welcome to the John 315 Podcast, the show where we break open the mysteries of the most popular and misunderstood Bible verses and put them back into context. I am your host. They call me Jonathan Hates the Oxford, Van Shank. And here is my co-host. They call him Jeremy is ambivalent toward the Oxford, Swingle. Now, Jeremy, why do they call you is ambivalent toward the Oxford, Swingle? I don't really know. I'm ambivalent about it. <laughs> Yeah, well, so the joke here is that, uh, uh, you know, the, the Oxford comma is a, um, uh, it, it, it's a thing in English grammar where it basically has to do with where you put commas in lists of things. So, you know, if I wanted to say, uh, uh, you know, like, I like three colors, I like the color green, the color blue, and the color red. The question is, like, how many commas do you put in that sentence? Do you say, like, I like the color green, comma, the color red, comma, and the color yellow, comma? I think I did those in a different order that second time. Uh, but anyway, so it's like, do you, do you put commas after all three of those things? Like, namely, the comma right before the and? Or do you, like, omit the comma right before the and? So it'd be like, I like the color green, comma, the color red, and the color yellow with, like, no second comma there. And so if you put that comma in... That's called the Oxford comma, because a bunch of hoity-toity people at Oxford apparently decided that that's the way that you should do things in style. But I argue the Oxford comma is terrible and we shouldn't use it because it looks lame and you already have an and in the sentence. You don't also need a comma. It's mm, mm. I do not like the Oxford comma. Well, I I much less passionately and far more ambivalently kind of like the comma. And I don't know why, because I don't necessarily have a strong opinion of the hoity-toity folks over at Oxford. But I don't know. I've just always done it that way, John. And something about that extra comma there adds a little like, okay, now we know there's three parts to this sentence instead of two parts. One of which has two colors randomly and the other which has one part. I'm just a comma fan. I mean, when I type things on Microsoft Word, Word is always telling me, like, hey, this comma is like completely not supposed to be here, and I just keep it because I'm stubborn. We should have called you Jeremy Comma Happy Swingle. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, well, but another fun point about this, you will also notice, listeners of the podcast, that I am the one who writes up the podcast descriptions in your little podcast app because the second sentence of all of our podcast descriptions are a list of three things, and I do not use the Oxford comma. Yes, but unfortunately, I've had to catch a few typos, John. Well, yes, but I am frequently misspells things, Van Shank, as well. So and I, I like the commas, I just can't spell the words right. Well, you do the grammar, and I'll do the spelling. Sound good? There we go. Power team. Hey, we should do a podcast or something. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, our verse for today is a pretty famous one, and you've probably heard it, and you've probably heard it kind of misquoted as well. We're looking at Romans 8.28, and I'm going to read it here. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, this verse, I, it's maybe not so much misunderstood as just people don't know what's going on in the context. Like, I'm not sure that I regularly hear people just completely abuse this verse. I don't know about you, John. No, no, I'm not sure I've ever heard anybody, like, legitimately misinterpret this verse before. I think sometimes, though, in culture, um, and perhaps this is coming more from from non-Christians, from people outside the faith, but uh, it's common to hear people say things like, oh, all things happen for a reason, right? And that's like a way that people will comfort those who are grieving. 
uh, like, you know, hey, we don't maybe we don't know what happened, but uh, but all things happen for a reason. And so culturally, I'm not sure if that comes like from Romans 8:28 or not. I would be kind of surprised if it doesn't. <laughs> Just because, you know, um, we have such a long history in our culture of, of people who have read the Bible. And so I think we might be kind of far removed now from the original meaning of that phrase. But um, so people will kind of take God out of the picture that, you know, the Christian God and just say it sort of like in a sense, oh, the universe, you know, everything will everything will come together. Right. Or maybe they are referring to a God, but not the Christian God. And so. Yeah, so I don't know. I, I think that's kind of how I've heard people misunderstand this verse. And then in addition to that, there's some other like context stuff, which we're going to get into that makes this verse a lot cooler than you think. It, um, it's, you know, it's another one of those verses that um, we're not necessarily critiquing anybody in this episode. We're more like trying to shine some light into some dark corners here. So let's just dive right into some scripture here. Let's get started with uh, the meat here using our standard practice. Uh, and that is we, we tend to start with a pretty broad context uh, for our verse. And then we, you know, begin to work our way into the actual verse itself. So, you know, what is the broad context of Romans 8.28 here? Well, you know, the verse, it comes in the center of the book of Romans. And so we're going to start by digging into what the book of Romans is really actually about. Now, Romans is a letter that Paul wrote to the church at Rome. Likely, he did this near the end of his third missionary journey. And historically, that would put it around the same time that he's writing the letters to the Corinthian church. Uh, this is also, if you know the book of Acts, this is also right before he goes back to Jerusalem and then gets thrown into prison. And there's that kind of whole debacle that happens from, I think it's like Acts 20 to the end of the book of, you know, this series of Paul just kind of being in prison for a while. Uh, and so this is kind of like near the end of his uh, uh, kind of public evangelistic ministry of going around and planting churches. Though at the time of writing the letter, he doesn't yet know that he's going to be, you know, thrown into prison and prevented from, you know, continuing to plant churches. So Paul is writing this letter uh, to the church at Rome, and it, it seems like it's a bit of a self-introduction to the church at Rome. We see in Romans 1, 11 through 13, that Paul is actually planning on visiting the church at Rome. It's, you know, this is a, like a plan that he's kind of had in the works for a while. And we can imagine that this letter is serving to kind of like lay the groundwork for, you know, when he actually does show up, the the future teaching that he's going to then be presenting. You know, and this actually, to it totally comes across in the feeling of the letter. It's this actually incredibly formal construction. If you look at the language and kind of just the way that the letter sounds and feels, it really doesn't contain very much personalized discussion of the church at Rome. You know, compare this with uh, letters like Galatians or 1 Corinthians, which are chock full of all of this like hyper-specific language. Like, you know, I'm thinking in particular in like 1 Corinthians, there's like an actual person at the church that Paul calls out um, in, uh, uh, Jeremy, what is it? Is it like 1 Corinthians 5 with the, the, uh, the, the man who's having the illicit relationship with his stepmother? Yes, that's chapter 5. Yeah, yeah, totally. And so like, like that's the kind of thing that you see in 1 Corinthians, which like clearly Paul is super familiar with the church and the people who are there, but that is not at all what Romans sounds like at all. You know, what you notice in Romans is that Paul makes all of these like sweeping, general, broad statements that he makes over the course of the letter that are really actually pretty widely applicable. 
Uh, and so we're going to take that when we are making our applications to understand that we should have a little bit of extra latitude when we're working with the Book of Romans to make pretty general applications from the text, just from the start, um, in particular, because, you know, Paul isn't making the same kind of like specific personalized applications that he does in other letters. Yeah, I think you're I think you're right there, John. I, there's a lot to Romans that is a little simpler than a book like First Corinthians, because even though Paul does does talk about some personal issues with the Romans. It's much more theological, formal. It reads, it's it's kind of the closest thing you'll see in the Bible to a theology textbook, really. Um, it's not, it is still a letter, but uh, there's a reason why Christians have been so inspired by Romans over the years, and that is that it's just so packed with truth in every verse in a way that is unlike most of Paul's other writing or really anything else in the Bible. Well, packed with like universal truth. Right. But my point is that if you read first Corinthians, you might have a whole chapter that's kind of like saying one point um, because Paul is sort of going on about this particular issue at Corinth and it'll be like awesome. He'll go, go at it from all these different angles. But with Romans, you'll just get like, you know, kind of like boxing punches to the head with every verse it's like a whole different you know like they're all kind of relating to a theme there's definitely an argument a logic to it but it can just feel like man it, it, even one chapter of romans is kind of too much for your daily devotions you know? <laughs> yeah you got to take it like two verses at a time yeah for sure there's so much to unpack so much grammar right and that's there's some other books of paul that are like that but uh, romans is by far the longest so, and that's kind of the, this other point to notice um, about Romans, besides the context of the church he's writing the letter to, the majority of the letter is just this long building argument. Uh, and we were noticing that about Hebrews a few episodes ago, um, when we were talking about the word of God is living and active, right? That there's this argument that, like, you know, that 412 finds itself in the middle of for that book. So just like in that episode, of course, we're going to need to kind of understand where the flow of the argument is up until chapter 8 to make sure we're understanding 8 properly. So we're just going to quickly, I guess, summarize it. And we intend to talk about Romans more times on this podcast. So we might have to like, hopefully we do a good job here so we can send people back to this episode instead of talking about this every time. Because we have some Romans in the works, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, yes, we have great plans. <laughs> so up to this point... Um, the book has spent a long time contrasting two states that a person can be in, two different lives that a person can live, and two different trajectories for where people are headed. And Romans will use different you know, metaphors and different language to describe this, but in chapter 4, we're going to use that language. Uh, uh, Paul says that a person can be either, quote, in Adam or in Christ. And those are the two categories. And Paul's argument so far has been that everyone, by default, is in the category of in Adam. And when you're in the person of Adam, God has set up a process by which you can live in peace and relationship with him, right? To do his commandments. And so this is, you know, for the Jews, this looked like following the commands given in the Old Testament, the Mosaic law. But for the non-Jewish person, this involves actually the conscience that God has given to us, which each of us possesses internally in our heads, right? Or our souls, we might say. So instead of having this external law of Moses, we have this internal guide, our conscience. And that's for those of us Gentiles before Christ. That's, you know, that is the way that we are to have relationship with God and is to do what is right, what we know is right internally. 
But Paul is, has then made the argument that literally nobody actually follows these commands, Jew and Gentile. And that's kind of the meta theme of Romans. If you, if you know one thing about Romans, and, and one thing that'll help you understand a passage you're not understanding when you're trying to understand Romans, then it's going to be this, this like linchpin that Jew and Gentile both have sinned, right? Every single Jew, every single Gentile, none of the Jews follow the law of Moses the way they ought to have. None of the Gentiles follow their conscience the way they ought to have. And so all of those who are in Adam, Jew or Gentile, there's no hope of having peace with God because nobody who's in Adam fulfills that criterion to have that peace, namely to obey, right? To obey the law or to obey our conscience. Everybody sins is, is Paul's point, right? So th those of you who did Awana or, you know, did um, the Romans Road memorization uh, when you were little, you know, probably remember Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Um, <laughs> maybe we'll do an episode on that one one of these days, right? Hint, hint, hint. But anyway, uh, back to Paul, right? So Romans 3.23, in Adam, everyone is hopeless. Everybody sins. But instead of being an Adam, you could be in Christ. It's a better idea. Ideally, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, we'll just we'll just give the little plug right here. We think you should be in Christ, not an Adam. De just, you know. <laughs> it's definitely the better better end of this deal, right? <laughs> totally. So there's this different mechanism in which you can have peace with God. Are you to be in Christ, right? And that mechanism of having peace with God is by putting your faith in in Jesus. None of us followed God's laws, but Jesus did, right? Jesus actively obeyed the commands of his Father. And in so doing, he fulfilled the demands of the law. He fulfilled the demands of what it means for us to be able to have peace with God. And, you know, this amazing truth is that by putting our faith in him, God assigns to us that righteousness, right? As if we had followed his law. So, he, you know, Christ takes our sin upon himself. He dies for our sin on the cross. He bears our sin, right? And then we receive that righteousness. So Martin Luther called that the great exchange. I think that's Martin Luther, right? Uh, I'm not sure. Okay, well, some cool dude, <laughs> probably, <laughs> probably Martin Luther, um, coined that as the great exchange, right? So in that way, by being in, in Christ instead of in Adam, we get the benefits of having followed the law, namely, especially peace with God. That's Paul's you know, chief concern. Peace with God, whether Jew or Gentile, right? Even though we ourselves have sinned. So that's kind of what, you know, at least with what relates to chapter eight, that's what we've been seeing so far in the, in the argument. Yeah. And, and there's, Paul goes through a whole long discussion kind of between chapters four and seven that gets into some other themes, but hopefully we'll circle back to them another time. But that, that's kind of the relevant piece when we're getting into chapter eight here. So we, we get to chapter eight and Paul opens it up with this summary, summarizing verse or the summarizing statement that kind of elicits the, the the thing that we were just talking about before. He says, you know, in verse one here, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that's exactly kind of the same statement that we just made before. It's like either you're in Adam or you're in Christ. But if you're in Christ, there's no condemnation for you because you uh, have been given the benefits of Jesus's perfect law keeping. And so now you uh, are are freed from the condemnation that you you would have experienced if you were just like on your own merits in Adam. That's kind of the, the point that he's summarizing right here. And the crazy thing about that verse too, John, is that it comes right after chapter seven, which is Paul's famous, you know, wretched man that I am like statements, right? That Paul is acknowledging that he still sins, that he still grieves God. And then he just immediately launches into, there's, there's no chapter breaks, remember, in the original Romans. 
There's no chapter break at all. Instead, he goes right from the wretched man that I am to thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, right? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's pretty incredible. Yeah, it's it's really powerful stuff. And and so you get to this summary statement here of like there's no condemnation. But then it, it, it kind of prompts this question. It's like, well, you know, if if what we don't have in Christ is condemnation, well, like, what is it that we do have in Christ? And the, the answer that Paul, you know, continues to give through the rest of the chapter is the thing that we do have is the Spirit of God. We have this life that the Spirit gives to us rather than the death that we would have from the sin that we, we have when we're, when we're in Adam. So here, listen to Paul kind of explain what it means to have this, like, life in the Spirit or this living in the Spirit. Uh, I'll quote here from Romans 8, uh, verses 13 through 17. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. That's kind of living in sin there. But if if in the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So this is what life in the Spirit means. It means that we are adopted as sons of God. And I mean, this is like absolutely crazy, right? So we start out in Adam, we're condemned, we're dying, we're living in our sin, we're helpless. But then we are, you know, when we move into the category of being in Christ, God sets us free from our sins so that we're no longer condemned, dying, helpless anymore. But, you know, it, that, that moving, that freeing us from sin, it's not like a, you know, all right, Johnny, I'm letting you off this time, but like, don't do it again. It's, it, it, it's not that he just kind of like, lets us get off scot-free, but that he adopts us as his son. He brings us into his family. He makes us one of our children. Yeah, and in in addition to that, John, uh, something that it gets missed, I think, when we talk about being sons of God, uh, this biblical metaphor, we seem to miss a lot that that doesn't just mean, you know, a father's love for his children, which it does mean, that's part of it. But, I mean, back when this was written, this, there, this was a much more of an inheritance-based culture than we now live in. I mean, you still inherit things from, from your parents, but, um, you know, having children, I, I think, denoted a lot more. Like, people were more interested in their family lines, right, and, and how far back their lineage goes. And so having some inheritance to give to your children was a huge part of being a father, like what that means to be a father in uh, the Greco-Roman world. And so you see this you know, we're heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So it's not just that God loves us, which he does, but also we inherit all of the blessings that Christ has. And Christ is literally God. So that's a pretty sweet deal. Yeah, totally. And and actually that point, I think, makes a bit of a connection that I, like, I, I know some people struggle a little bit with this idea of like being a son of God of, you know, particularly if you're a lady, it's like, well, what do you mean I'm a son of God? I'm a woman, you know, but it, but like, I, I don't think that's actually Paul's point right here. He's not saying like, you have to become a man in this, like your relationship with God. Uh, it, it's more like kind of what you were saying, Jeremy, it's accessing this idea of what adoption as a son would have meant in that culture of this, like you get to inherit 
the things that are gods. And and so it you know, like it, it's not saying like ladies you have to become men. It's saying that like in the same way that the son inherits the like estate of the father, you also when you are adopted into God's family become an inheritor of you know like God's estate in in that kind of sense. You know, but awesome as that is, this like wonderful truth that we're adopted into God's family. I think there's a little piece that we need to camp on a little bit that we've kind of glossed over a bit until here. So listen to verse 17, Romans 8, 17, one more time. So, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. That's what we were just talking about. But listen to the last part of this verse. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So as sons of God in this, you know, we are like made the inheritors of God's estate, we are certainly promised glorification with Christ. That's, you know, being, uh, you know, made heirs with Christ and, you know, inheriting all things. But, you know, we are also promised suffering. In fact, Dang it, John, I was hoping Romans 8.28 was going to help me win the baseball game. <laughs> Unfortunately not. It's it's not just all like happy go lucky. It's like we're we are we're promised suffering. And in fact there's actually kind of a direct parallel that's being made here to the life of Jesus. You know, Jesus, he came into the world as a man. He suffered and died and then was raised and glorified. So, you know, we are we are given the privilege of joining Jesus in his life. We are, you know, made co-heirs with Christ, to use Paul's language in, in another book. You know, so we're given this this privilege of joining with Jesus in his life. But that is a, a life of suffering, a life of suffering and death. But it's it's kind of through that joining with Jesus in his life and in his death that we are also given the privilege of joining Jesus in his glorification as well. In fact, verse 17, it even prescribes suffering as this like precondition for glorification. It says, you know, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So it's like the suffering, it's not like optional. It's like part of the deal. The point here is that, you know, as a follower of Jesus, we're promised suffering. And it, you know, it's not like God is saying, well, hey, you know, I, I guess there's going to be a little bit of pain that you're going to need to bear up under. And, uh, you know, it's bummer, but you'll, you'll, you'll be fine, I guess. <laughs> like, that, that's not what God's saying at all. It's much more of this, like, you know, make sure you get some of that suffering in. Because that is, like, the, the, the way that you are joining with Jesus in his life and death. So that you can join with him in his glorification as well. <laughs> it's like, you know, if there are any computer programmers out there, the, the way that I like to think of this is, you know, suffering, it's not a bug of the Christian life. It's actually a feature of the Christian life. Absolutely. Um, and given that suffering is promised, I mean, you know, Jesus himself says that we must take up our cross to follow him. Paul, you know, goes on in the next section and he's going to talk about what that suffering looks like and how we should make sense of it. So Romans 8, 18 through 27. So we're, we're going to approach our target verse here, um, our baseball game winning verse. And uh, as you listen, try to pick out who is the object of suffering in this passage. Who is the, the, the person who is suffering? Quote, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. 
For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. All right, that takes us right up to our verse 28 here. And kind of in that passage, one thing I noticed, John, is that the key word is like groan. (laughs) There's this this repeated word groan. I don't know how often like we groan these days. Like I, it's a strong word. It kind of, it's like a great word. <laughs> like I have an idea. I, I'm not going to say it into the mic. I'm not going to do a groan into the mic just to annoy everybody. Save our ears. Listening. But it has a very, it connotes a very specific kind of, you know, sound, you know? Yeah, certainly. It's, it's, it's not like, it's not like a whine. It's not like a, you know, a sigh, but yeah, like groan is, it, yeah, it, it's there's definitely like a lot of intensity that's you know kind it's of guttural. Ba- yeah, yeah, guttural and um, kind of like what that last verse is saying of like groanings with too too deep for words. Of it's like sub language or maybe trans language, like beyond language. I'm, I'm not sure, but it's like it's something other than like coherent expression. Oh, it definitely transcends language. I, I think that what it makes me think of is you know. If anybody listening, you know, if you've had somebody pass away, just like, especially much earlier than you would have normally expected. Um, like, sorry, I don't don't need to get all damper on it. But um, like, I've had that happen to me. I've had friends who have, you know, suddenly died in an accident. And it's like, just the grief, right? Like the, the groaning, you make sounds, you're crying, right? But you're also just a mess. Um, that's kind of like, we're groaning, right? Groaning, groaning, grieving, suffering crying probably right making noises we wouldn't make in front of our employers (laughs) or on a first date right that's the idea um so there's like three groups who groan i think in this passage and let's just you know point these out first we see creation itself groaning well that's already kind of crazy that's you know this has to be some kind of like metaphorical language i'm assuming um because you know Oh, creation. Jeez, that's like everything that exists other than God, right? <laughs> yeah, like like you mean rocks and garage doors and trees and, you know, the black hole at the center of our galaxy? <laughs> well, it is, it's actually, you know, it's crazy because the Bible actually talks about creation speaking and, and, you know, doing things that are normally human things a lot, you know. I'm thinking of, I think it's in book, the book of Luke. It's in one of the Gospels when... Uh, Jesus says, if, if these people don't, you know, sing praises to me, then even the stones will cry out. So, um, and then of course, uh, Jesus also says in the gospels, you know, that you shouldn't be too overconfident because you're children of Abraham, because God can raise children for Abraham out of these stones. (laughs) There's like this idea that if we didn't exist, then God would still be glorified by the rocks. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Totally. And and you know and and the 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 personification of nature is it like it's all over the Old Testament too. I I think particularly of 
in the book of Deuteronomy, where, you know, Moses is, you know, he's giving this like farewell speech to the people of Israel right before they go into the land. Uh, and is, you know, he essentially like lays out the, the, the law one more time for the people before they kind of like ship off and, and, you know, go take over the land. And one of the things that he says, it's, it's really interesting, is he, he actually calls the earth, like the, the ground and the land as a witness against the people of Israel that, you know, essentially he says like, you know, the creation hears that I am telling you the law right now. And so if you don't follow it, like creation is going to be the witness against you when, you know, God brings up charges and says like, you didn't follow my commandments. And like, and he calls a witness and it's going to be the earth. Dude. Okay. This is blowing my mind because you know how the law of Moses also requires two or three witnesses. So God is one witness and creation is the other witness. Oh, that's right? so cool. I mean, like, okay, like, so I, I have not studied this. That just came to mind. So that could be such a wrong inter- interpretation. <laughs> but if that's the case, dude, we need to look that up. Maybe we'll do an episode on that. <laughs> okay, okay. That's that's very, very interesting. I had not thought about that before. I mean, so I can guarantee that the two or three witnesses passages, uh, the two or three witnesses requirement, rather, um, is not always understood as two or three human beings who witnessed it it can be objects so i'll leave it there the 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 pieces are all there but yeah so so of course we have creation groaning right we have this idea in the bible that that creation itself has a character to it right and it, it could maybe it's not conscious right on the same level as humans are it's not like there's some sort of universal soul of creation um or anything you know kind of weird like that but rather creation is here personified as sort of one unit right that has fallen under the effects of sin you know it harkens back to genesis 3 where you know adam and eve were first cursed god says to adam um, cursed is the ground because of you in pain you shall eat of the ground all the days of your life thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So this cursing of the creation has, you know, been the case ever since we first sinned in Adam, and we're still experiencing it now. And so the creation suffers futility, right? The creation is subjected to death. All animals die. Plants, right, are attacked by bugs. <laughs> and so, like, the whole the whole thorns and thistles, right, choke our, our plants. That's a more Genesis esque uh, way to talk about it so the point is like a lot of us as a lot of our i guess history as a people is just trying to figure out how we can still eat food even though the ground doesn't like us very much so god curses creation because of adam's sin and then we've seen in romans that paul connects this creation waiting for our glorification with christ because at that point creation is going to be remade So creation is groaning together in the pains of childbirth, right? So interestingly, childbirth links us right back to Genesis 3, where the consequence of Eve's sin is pain in childbirth. But it's also an analogy here, of course, like birth is really painful. You know, it's excruciating, but it does end, right? There is a moment at which labor ends and the pain is not fruitless, it brings a whole new life into the world. So Paul actually used this picture for our glorification earlier, right? Provided that you suffer in order that you might be glorified. So our suffering is a precondition for our glorifying, just as labor is the precondition for new life. 
And then I think this connection is made even more explicit with the second group that groans. Um, so if you look at verse 23, it says, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Yeah. And, and what's really surprising about this passage um, is, you know, not so much that the creation uh, groans and that, you know, we groan also, but particularly the third group that is groaning here. It, it's actually the Holy Spirit himself. Here's verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So here we see that even as we struggle and suffer in this like childbirth-like expectation of our glorification, and you know, creation is also struggling in that same kind of way, the Spirit himself joins us in that experience. The, you know, the way in which we are crying out, groaning in our sufferings, that is the same quality as the prayer that the Holy Spirit, or the prayers that the Holy Spirit makes on our behalf. These prayers that the Holy Spirit makes, they are, they're also too deep for words. It's this groaning that, you know, it's like we said before, it transcends language. It's, you know, beyond what can be expressed in words. You know, well, so for those of you who have either given birth or, you know, have been with someone who has given birth, you know kind of what this language transcending groaning is. You know, you 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 may not be able to describe what birth is like, or you may you may be able to describe what birth is like, you know, before and after, and you can kind of like develop some language around talking about what the experience is like. But, you know, in the midst of the experience, it's just simply beyond explanation. And that's kind of what's in view here. It's a the it's a spirit who is with us, who is inside of us, who is is with us in these struggles that we have, in this suffering. And it it's not like a holy spirit who's kind of like separate and distinct, but who is so immersed with us in our experience that the holy spirit himself is in this state of like being beyond words in the way that that he is articulating his prayers. And so this brings us to the like really truly beautiful verse 27. And he, that is God, who searches hearts, knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The picture here is that the Spirit intercedes with these, like, deep, inarticulate cries. But, you know, God knows the Spirit's mind, and so God is still able to understand what it is that the Spirit is communicating. You know, but what's really like powerful here is not just that the Spirit's prayers for us are kind of in the midst of our own experience, which, I mean, don't get me wrong, is amazing, you know, that he groans as we groan, but it's that linked with that, his prayers are perfect in a way that our prayers are not. So compare here with verse 26, you know, we do not know what to pray for as we ought. Compare that with verse 27. The Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So we see that there is this contrast being set up between us with imperfect knowledge who are in suffering and experience, and we pray, but, you know, it, it's we almost don't even know what it is that we're praying for or how to articulate it or what even it is that the will of God is that we should be asking for. But there's the Spirit who is with us in the midst of that experience, who both knows us and so can intercede, can like lift up our needs and our requests on behalf of us. 
But the Spirit also knows God's mind, and he knows what the will of the Father is, and so he is able to perfect our prayers into being in perfect harmony and accord with what it is that God does, in fact, will. So this, then, is the context of going into our, our verse, uh, Romans eight twenty eight. God has this designed, intended purpose for our suffering. It is the, the, they are the birth pangs of our own glorification. Yet God is, he, it's not, he's not far away from us in that suffering that we experience, but he's right there in the midst with us, you know, as his spirit. And the spirit perfects our prayers, harmonizing God's will with our own experiences. And that really, I think, John, highlights what is lacking in this sort of like, well, all things happen for a reason sort of speak that we hear when people are suffering. 100% true. All things do happen for a reason. It is not a factually inaccurate statement, but this whole context of like suffering, well, it doesn't just happen like in the sense of, oh, you'll get through it. Everything will be better, right? Sort of a, a, a trite statement of, of, you know, solidarity with the grieving, I suppose, is kind of how it's intended. But it's actually like, no, suffering creates, you know, this environment with which we are sanctified. And it is the it eventually results in our glorification, right? And of course, having God in the context, <laughs> instead of just saying this, all things happen for a reason, sort of um, agnostic or atheistic comment, certainly makes things a lot more meaningful and deep for us Christians, right? But beyond that, it's more than just like, oh, God has a plan. No, this is his specific plan. And it's used with these really, really crazy metaphors of like labor, right? Like things that humans have experienced and it's this radical kind of life-changing experience. And, and those are the metaphors being grasped here. Yeah, like childbirth, I think is it's one of the most intense experiences that humans go through in a, in a normative fashion. Yes, absolutely. And that's what's in view here. So anything that, that, that might turn this verse into something trite is just missing, you know, or, or a cliche, right? just missing the all the awesome stuff in the context. And so let's reread the verse and then just kind of break down 828 itself. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So, of course, this is continuing the previous thought. And there are a few phrases to break down here. The first is this interesting, those who love God phrase. And the second is, all things work together for good. And then lastly, we've got those who are called according to his purpose. So let's take them in order. I'm going to tackle first, those who love God. In context, this obviously has to be connected to the same group of people Paul has been talking about this whole time, namely the corporate body of the church. Jews and Gentiles, important, you know, that's the big E on the I chart for Paul, right? The whole church body, Jew and Gentile, everyone who belongs to Christ, who loves God, right? That's the we from the beginning of this verse and from this whole chapter. So, It'd be silly to try and differentiate the Christians in Rome. I mean, obviously, Paul is writing a letter to a specific group of people. So grammatically, the we is, you know, me, Paul, and you, Romans. But of course, the fact that this is in our Bibles at all would indicate that we should, <laughs> you know, expand this a little broader and include ourselves in the we as well, right? And those who love God. So, and it's interesting that Paul actually does this switch from using, like, first-person plural pronoun, we, to an impersonal those who love God, right? He goes from personal to impersonal. Um, he doesn't say, we know that we who love God 
um, all things work together for good for us, right? He, he makes a little bit of a linguistic distance here, which is one of those, like, it, you don't want to read too much into it, but also there's definitely something going on there. He's trying to expand it beyond, right? I'm writing a letter still to the Romans, but now I'm trying to expand it um, to everybody. So there's also a quality of time that is shifting here too, not just the pronoun. In 8.22, it said, we ourselves groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And that verse, you can feel the presentness of the verse. We're in this moment, we're groaning and we're experiencing eagerness. Instead of the shift for, from we to those, moves us away from the direct experience of the present into something less immediate. Paul is a little more abstract here. This is like a general thing. This isn't is no longer like we're in the middle of the pains of childbirth groaning. Now it's like those who love God, all things work together for good. Now we're talking about kind of like abstract theology, right? <laughs> like what's going on behind the scenes, not not this like super visceral experience. So it seems that Paul is kind of detaching the conversation from the particular and starting to describe the timeless and the universal. So Paul is talking about us, right? Just like Jeremiah 29, 11, we concluded is, is in fact talking about us. So Christian living in the 21st century, us listening to this podcast, us recording to this, you know, us recording, <laughs> John and I, he's not only talking about us and he's not writing to us, but he is talking about us. Um, so that's the first phrase, those who love God. Now, I know we said we were going to take the phrases in order, but I'm actually going to sidestep the second phrase for a second and go straight to the third. Uh, so the third phrase, again, is, you know, for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, there's actually a reason why I'm skipping to the third phrase, uh, and that's because this third phrase is actually talking about the same group of people as the first phrase was. Um, you can see this in just the construction of the sentence. You know, both of the groups are referred to as the those. We have the those who love God and the those uh, called according to his purpose. Um, and so, you know, we see here that the, the phrase, you know, called according to his purpose is actually really interesting um, because it means that there's kind of like an intention that God has, which is leading him to call the people that he's calling. Um, you know, it's like there's his purpose, which is, you know, the, the, the mechanism by which the people are being called. You know, and, and but we just saw that this group, this called group is the same as the group that loves God from the first phrase. So it begs the question, if they're the same group being described in these two ways, what exactly is like the connection between the quality of being described as, you know, loving God versus this quality of being called by God? I think kind of the only sensible way of actually stitching these two ideas together is the idea that, you know, the loving of God is something that comes temporally after the calling by God. You know, otherwise it's like, you know, what is God doing actually calling them if they already love him or you know putting it another way if god like hasn't called somebody yet uh you, you know like how is that that they know him so that they could love him so you know this may sound a little bit like we're splitting hairs but it, it's actually really important i promise and the reason why it's important is because this corrects a possible misunderstanding that people might actually have about romans eight twenty eight. You know, some people might read just the first half of the verse and say, you know, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And, you know, you might think, well, oh, great. So as long, so long as I'm loving God, things are going to work out for good. You know, kind of either this like cosmic slot machine idea where if I do this thing, then I get this other thing from God. People might also like think of the like loving God. It's like this precondition for all of the good things that we're going to see in a minute. 
Um, but that doesn't actually hold up if you think about what the second half of the verse is saying, because, you know, the those who love God and the those who are called are the same group. So the all things working for good is being applied to the group of people who are the those who are called according to his purpose. But the calling happens before the loving. And so it's it really kind of what the, the verse is highlighting is not so much that it's like, oh, if you love God, then these things are going to happen. It's much more of this, oh, the like those who love God, it's just a way of describing the category of people that this working of good things applies to. In the same way that um, the, you know, being those called according to his purpose, it's, it's just describing the category of people. Yeah, it's not like God is a cosmic vending machine. Like if you love him, then he will output the all things that work together for good. Um, like that's an important potential misunderstanding. Some people treat like passages of the Bible that, promise good things to you know the redeemed of god and then you, you can't just activate those good things by like a, a single decision you have to actually belong to this group <laughs> this different category right and the way that you describe this group can be it's the group of people who love god precisely yes well so we skipped over that second phrase let's go back to that the the all things work together for good part this is the meat right this is like the mm, gotta love this part What's the point here? So the qualifier all, <laughs> right, at the beginning of this phrase, it's a tricky word to interpret. It can mean different things in different contexts. Like you would think, when, I mean, I don't know, the dictionary definition would be like all is every single thing in a given subset of things, right? But uh, sometimes we, we use it in, in different ways. So if I was to ask John, how many Oreos did you eat, John? And I said, all of them. Well, he probably didn't mean literally every oreo that exists on the earth <laughs> he probably m means something like i ate all the oreos that were in the house or perhaps he he's literally just saying i slammed down a couple rows of oreos <laughs> from the package and i'm probably going to die of a heart attack anytime soon and i need an insulin shot to manage my spike of blood sugar <laughs> John doesn't actually do that, ladies and gentlemen. That's <laughs> no, it's it. Well, actually, let me jump in here. Uh, I, I had Oreos the other day for like the first time in five years. And it was the realization that I've finally gotten old because I like ate two Oreos and was like, oh, these are so sugary. I can't eat another one. Teenage Jonathan would be so disappointed. <laughs> did you know that Oreos are vegan, by the way? I did know that, actually. I was I was telling my wife that the other day, and she didn't believe me. Uh, and so, so, of course, you know, I want to be right. <laughs> so we grabbed the package and went through the ingredients. Well, there you go. It's I mean, it's vegan, so it's healthy for you, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's good. <laughs> Wow, we got really off the point there, didn't we? Anyways, so the word all. <laughs> the word all probably doesn't mean, you know, every single Oreo in existence, right? So it can also have a looser definition, which is intended to only encompass kind of like the categories, right? So your friend asks, like, I like poodles. Which dogs do you like? And you could reply like, oh, I like all dogs, which isn't a statement that you like every dog in existence, but rather that you like all categories. Um, so we need to be careful here. When Paul says all things... Like, what things does he mean? In what category? Similarly to what we noticed for the phrase, those who love God, from the context, like the all things here encompass the suffering that we have already talked about. And this is totally in keeping with the previous few paragraphs in Romans. Our sufferings are intended by God as a part of the process of being glorified with Christ. So this would make the things suffering and the good our glorification in Christ. 
So the all of all things could mean that there is no suffering we endure which is outside of the intended good of God. Seems legit enough. However, we also notice that in the first part of the verse, we know that for those who love God, that switch from we to those is broadening the context above just the present Roman believers to generalize to all followers of Jesus. So similarly here, we should broaden the context of this all things to a general point. It's not just our sufferings that are working for our good, but all of history is conspiring together to bring about our good. Yeah, Jeremy, I love that picture. This, you know, history conspiring together. You know, it's it's almost like you have uh, like uh, events that are all like gathering into a dark back room and they're like plotting. They're like, ah, yes, how can we create good for those who love God? And, and I don't know. It's 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 just a little comical in my head. I'm I'm, I'm not sure if anybody else think that thinks that's funny. You know, but but something we should point out about the phrase, you know, all things work together for good. Uh, uh, and actually, those of you who are following at home might have already noticed this. Uh, but the, you know, all things work together for good. There's actually a little footnote uh, attached to the end of that phrase. And if you go track that footnote down at the, you know, the bottom of your page of the Bible, you, you might see that the footnote tells you that there's actually a little bit of dispute about what this phrase, you know, all things work together for good actually says like like what is it that the actual greek is that's being translated here now it turns out that most of the copies of romans you know the the greek copies that our, our bible's actually based off of they say all things work together for good and you know that that's how the esv renders it here However, there are actually a few early copies of the book of Romans, uh, you know, including one copy of Romans that was made in probably around 180 AD. This is like, you know, only 120 years after Paul actually wrote the letter originally. So this is like super early copy of the book. You know, it actually reads, God works all things together for good. Now, the difference here isn't really that big. It's like, you know, God works all things together or, you know, all things work together. It's, you know, just kind of like who is the, the, the direct object here? Like who is the thing that is doing the working? Is it God or is it the things? Um, and I mean, even if it is like things work together for good, I, I think it's pretty clear that it's like God is the one who's actually behind this that's like causing the events to transpire. I mean, it'd be kind of silly to think that the events are, you know, off wild doing their own thing. Uh, <laughs> so like, I, I think it's that the, the former of like God works all things together is just a little bit more explicit. Um, and so, you know, in, in that sense, I don't think it really makes that big of a difference in the interpretation, but it's, it's totally worth pointing out. Yeah, I would agree. I don't think it changes the interpretation one way or another, but it's always cool to note textual differences. And I'm certain we'll get plenty of opportunities to talk about that on this podcast. So may maybe on a different episode when it's a more significant interpretation, we can do a deep dive into that. If you're listening to this and you're confused, like what? There's different Greek texts and, and all of that. Um, yes, there is. It's crazy. <laughs> There's a whole, <laughs> whole rabbit trail there. Um, but in this case, thankfully, the difference doesn't seem to affect the meaning of the verse. So I, I think we've talked uh, a lot about kind of the, the, the all things aspect of this, and we've, you know, made the argument that the, uh, the all things are, it's, it's definitely in the context of the suffering, but Paul is kind of generalizing a little bit here, and so it's more than just our sufferings that are the all things that are talked about here. Um, but that brings us to the second half of the phrase, and that is the, you know, work together for good. And, you know, like, what, what does it actually mean that the things are working together for good? And to kind of help us understand this a little bit, I think there are, there's a, a cross-reference that we can look up here of another instance in the Bible where this idea of, like, 
things working together for good, uh, again, in the context of suffering, is elucidated a little bit more. Uh, and so let's go back to that and kind of like look at that example. And then we can come back and, and flesh out a little bit more of like, what is this good that things are working out? So the, the reference we're going to be looking at is in Genesis 50. So, hey, Jeremy, can you give us a quick recap on like what is what is happening in the book of Genesis up to the 50th chapter uh, and then kind of go into a little bit of like what it is uh, that this cross references? Yes. Uh, welcome to my TED talk. We are going to quickly go over the entirety of Genesis, all 50 chapters. <laughs> so, you know, come back uh, in in 30 minutes after lunch, right? And we'll begin our second five hour session. Of <laughs> but no, all kidding aside. Um, so yeah, so I, I can't obviously recount the entire story of Genesis up to the final chapter, but but it is in the, the very end of the story of Joseph. And lots of people are probably familiar with the story of Joseph. He's the favorite son of Jacob. He has this amazing Technicolor dream coat, right? It's pretty cool. <laughs> and Jacob's other sons, uh, they don't like Joseph because he's kind of a well, what's the word? He's kind of a daddy's boy. I don't know. Like, <laughs> he's the favorite and he's... Um, Self-centered. <laughs> yeah, so under normal circumstances, you know, you would just try to put him in his place a little bit. Be like, dude, you're not, like, all that hot, right? But no, instead they conspire to kill him, which is a perfectly you know, rational <laughs> rational response to not being the favorite son. The Bible's crazy, man. Like, these are these are the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. Like, <laughs> this, is, this is the heritage of... <laughs> Of God's people. Yeah, yeah. So a, a bit of encouragement here. If you think that your family has some issues, like, you know, at at, <laughs> at least your brothers aren't trying to kill you. Well, that you know, as far as you know. <laughs> well, well, maybe. But then again, in, in that case, you're like, hey, Joseph understands, bro. <laughs> so Reuben, the, the firstborn, he hears about, about it and he talks them out of murdering him. He's like, hey, let's just throw him into a cistern instead, right? So Reuben saves his life, but in sort of like the most <laughs> lame way <laughs> possible. I'm sorry, it's just ridiculous. I can't recount the story without giggling a little bit, um, even though it kind of sucked for Joseph. Um, but so a band of traders wanders by. They actually end up selling Joseph off into slavery instead. Joseph's carted off to Egypt. Then we fast forward a bit in the story. Joseph has actually found favor in the eyes of Pharaoh after um, interpreting Pharaoh's dreams for him. And he's basically made like the regent of the whole kingdom of Egypt. So he has a, a smaller leadership, rulership really position um, in Egypt next to the Pharaoh, right? And so quite a twist, right? Um, but it actually gets better. <laughs> Joseph learns via a dream that a crazy famine is coming. So he gets Egypt stocked up and prepared. Then the famine comes. Joseph's family needs to buy food and so Jacob sends his sons to come to Egypt to buy it. And um, so there's a few back and forth things with, you know, J Joseph doesn't reveal himself to his brothers right away. They don't know it's Joseph. And all of this happens. Um, <laughs> it's a long story. That's quite a few chapters. But uh, eventually, Joseph reveals to his brothers that he's alive, right? And then Jacob moves down with all his brothers to Egypt. Then after some time living in Egypt, Jacob dies and then we'll pick up there in chapter 50, verse 15. It says, When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they're worried now that the father's out of the picture that Joseph's going to get revenge. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. 
And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. So let's pause. Previously, Joseph had welcomed his brothers back despite their selling him into slavery years before. But the brothers are still worried that Jacob's out of the picture. Um, so they're trying to manipulate him, kind of say, hey, by the way, your dad said to forgive us, right? Kind of like a postmortem um, <laughs> blackmail. <laughs> I don't know. So Joseph, uh, here's his response, picking up at verse 17. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And that's a crazy statement there. Genesis 50, chapter 20. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. It being the evil. You meant evil against me, but God meant that evil for good. So here's, here's a direct example, and I think it's helpful to have this, um, this example, because Romans 8 keeps it a little bit big, heady ideas about God. But here is a very concrete example of what happens when God's people trust him and, and allow things to work out for good, right? The brothers do this evil thing, but what happens? Well, Joseph becomes, you know, a regent in Egypt, and a bunch of Egyptians and a bunch of people all over the world near Egypt are able to be saved because they can come to Egypt to buy grain and get food. So lots of people are saved out of this one little action that Joseph's brothers do. And of course, in, in a spiritual sense, not just a, you know, physical food sense, this should remind us a little bit of, of you know, even the, the crucifixion that Jesus endures, right? Jesus suffers on the cross, right, to save many people. As for the people who hung Jesus on that cross, they meant evil against him, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be saved. So it's just powerful that God has this plan that transcends our own sins and turns those things into good in the actuality of human history. And those things are still sins, right? We're still responsible for our moral evil, but God actually has a greater plan in and through humanity's rebellion against him. Yeah, and so the the thing that I, we can we can identify here is this idea of like God meaning it for good or God intending it for good is not necessarily in the moment of the like the experience of it. Like clearly Joseph wasn't like being thrown into a cistern and sold into slavery and being like, "Man, this is so good that this is happening right now." He's like, "No, brothers, what are you doing? This is evil. Don't, you know, throw me into the cistern." And so it's like in the experience, it is like suffering, it is evil, but kind of the ultimate result of that action is in fact good. You can, it's kind of like at the, you know, near the end here, Joseph is saying like in the final analysis, when you look at things, amazing good came of this evil thing that you did. And it was God's intention that that evil happen so that he could bring out so that he could bring out uh, about the good later on and so if we take that idea of like god intending it for good it's it's very similar to the language that we see in romans of like all things working together for good and so i, I think we're right to use this example in the old testament and bring that understanding into the new testament here with paul and to say that the good that all things are working for isn't necessarily a good in any particular moment that we experience, but it is kind of pushed off a little bit, that it's in the final analysis, we will see that all of our sufferings actually have produced for us 
ultimate good, good beyond anything that we could possibly conceive of or understand in the moment. It's almost the sense that, like, God is going to be vindicated that what he has done in history has produced ultimate transcendent good, even though the experiences that we had in the moment were evil, were suffering, were hard, were pain. The result of them is going to be good. I I think here we need to circle back to again and say that if you only take this verse, it might be kind of easy to hear this as kind of trite or even really tone deaf for someone who is actually in the midst of suffering, of saying like, hey, yeah, I like I know you're suffering, but in the end, it's going to pan out to be good for you, I guess, uh, which is like not at all what this verse is saying if you look at the context, which is why we spent such a long time on the first half of chapter 8. Because all of the beginning of chapter, the first part of chapter 8 is this discussion of the Holy Spirit interceding with us with groanings too deep for words. And, you know, the, the Holy Spirit being with us in that state of suffering. And so when you link those two verses together and you combine this, this Holy Spirit who is with us in the midst of suffering together with a totally sovereign God who intends everything in history for our good— You get both. God is with us, he has a plan, and he will work good. Okay, it's time for our good old application section of the podcast. And first off, I think, you know, we got to do it. Um, The Old Testament's really important, and you should definitely read it. And you know, like a lot of Christians don't understand the Old Testament. <laughs> Jeremy, very well. Jeremy, Jeremy. Like I, I, I know we joked about <laughs> last week that our first point is always that the Old Testament is important, but I'm not sure that really works with this podcast. Okay, fine. Well, you you come up with an application <laughs> point then. Okay, sure. How about how about this one? So in the the verses immediately before 828, we get this discussion of like our prayers. We, you know, we don't know what to pray for. The Holy Spirit prays in accordance with God's will. And, you know, it's this idea that, you know, the Holy Spirit, in a sense, perfects our prayers for us, like in accordance with God's will. And so I think there's just a really clear exhortation here that we should be leaning into this, this opportunity that God has given to us, that even in the midst of our suffering, even in the midst of our trials, when we pray, you know, we we don't even necessarily know what it is that God's will is. You know, we don't know, should we pray that, you know, this pass from us? Should we, you know, learn from this opportunity? Like, we don't, we don't even know what we should pray for. But we should still be praying. We should be leaning into uh, uh, this prayer to God because the Holy Spirit is with us. And even when we don't know how to pray or what to pray, the Holy Spirit perfects those prayers for us. So this is just an exhortation. I mean, like, especially to me, that we should be leaning into a life of prayer because God is sovereign. He is working all things for our good. And we don't need to know what that good is that God is working to pray for him to give us the help that we need. That's true. And we can pray for specific things, but I think that's a good answer to the typical question of like, why doesn't God always give me the things I pray for? Well, I mean, you can have meant the prayer with a good heart and have honored God with that prayer, and it can still be not what God wants for you, right? Um, I think it's a good good perspective on prayer, right? That if things don't transpire the way that, that we thought they would when we prayed for something, then the, the reasonable conclusion is that there's a reason God doesn't want things to go down that way, <laughs> you know, and that he has not stopped loving 
you know, loving us in the midst of that. And it's also a good call for like our prayers being a little more robust than just, you know, God, please let me get this job. God, please, you know, heal my, my, you know, brother or whatever. But our prayers also including things like, God, please grant me wisdom, a prayer which God will certainly answer without question if you pray for it, right? Um, things that he has already promised to give us. And so if you pray for those things, you know, the Lord is going to fulfill those requests in unseen ways that will blow your mind, right? Um, over time. Definitely. And I, and I think there's also another undertone to to this exhortation as well, that, you know, even if we don't now know what it is we should pray for, part of our, I think, relationship with the Spirit is that we are, you know, as the next verse says in, in, in Romans, that we're like conformed into the image of, of his son, conformed into the image of Christ. And that, that conforming is this, like, you know, part of it is this sensitizing to the, the working of the spirit in our lives. And, and, I, and I think kind of part of the piece of that is that our prayers become more and more in line with what it is that God's will is. And so that even as it is the Holy Spirit perfecting our prayers for us, I think we should be striving to always be praying in accordance with God's will. We should be trying to emulate the sorts of intercession that the Holy Spirit makes of seeking what it, what is it that is God's will and how can I be praying in accordance with that? Amen. Well, on a second point of application, I think it's good to reflect on that, the fact that God is sovereign, right? That this idea of all things working together for good implies a person who is able to work all things, right? And, you know, and we already know that about God, of course, apart from this verse, that that God knows all actual and possible things, that God knows how reality and history work infinitely. He literally created all of it. Everything that exists, including time itself, are a creation of God, right? So God is the only one capable of working all things together. And I think this is a good call. I know that we already mentioned this as an application in another episode, but I think it's poignant here as well. And it's just poignant because of the season we live in. And I think most of the people listening to this podcast are in the United States. We might have a few Canadians, but uh, yo, what up, people in Canada? <laughs> but, uh, you know, here in the United States, we have an election coming, right? And there's a lot of discussion, really it, very, well, shall we say, uh, non-Christian <laughs> Uh, sort of discussion around politics. It's gotten very polarized in America recently. Um, and, you know, we're not going to pontificate about one political opinion or another on this podcast. That's really not what we're about. Um, but I think it's important to see just how uh, vicious and polarized things have gotten. There's no charity. People don't uh, don't really respect one another. And I think everybody is looking for politics to save them, right? One way or another, right? This person's going to save us from the other side, right? Or this person's going to, you know, if some people even see it as like, this person's going to make bad things go away. And politicians are not capable of that. They can't work all things together for good. I mean, goodness, they can't all even string sentences together at this point. So it's like, <laughs> we need to see God on his throne and we need to see that above our earthly little politics. We really do. If you're somebody who spends like a bunch of time on this, it I don't know, spend a little more time in prayer. That's my encouragement to you. Like <laughs> just this week, see if you can do that a little bit each day instead of concerning about politics. And of course, it goes in with the coronavirus stuff too. I know a lot of us feel like we're sort of pawns in this weird chess game where we're not really sure that all the decisions being made have much to do with the science anymore, you know? 
Um, and so, you know, if that's the position you're in, of course, like, you know, the, the, your governor is not, you know, a master chess computer who is able to play the pieces correctly. Right. And they're going to make some, some poor moves and one way or another, you know, that's just the way it is uh, in this age, whether you like it or not, no matter what your thoughts or feelings are about it, you know, that's the world we live in right now, but God is sovereign and God actually does work all things together according to the counsel of his will for the good of those who love him. So whatever, you know, we're suffering in the meantime, whether it's just or not, you know, whether it's something that we deserve, whether it's even the smart decision or not, instead of, you know, whining about politics, as a lot of us do, let's consider that the reason things are the way they are right now is for an intended good purpose in God's will. And I, I don't know, I think we should just leave it at that. Whatever, whatever your opinions are on the ongoing things in the world, of which there seems to be one or two major new things literally every day. Uh, find some time to unplug and ponder that literally all of this is for your good, believer in Christ. Amen, Jeremy. And, and I, I think another extension that we can make of that is, think, how is it that God is working things out for good in history? Like, you know, like, how, how is it that God actually goes about bringing this good? And, you know, I, I think the story of Joseph is really helpful here that the, you know, it was evil done to Joseph that was the catalyst for this event. But then it is actions that Joseph takes in history that bring about the good thing of saving many people. It's him who was faithful to God in what he did, um, both as a slave and then in Potiphar's house and then as a regent of Egypt, he was faithful to God in what he did, and that was the mechanism by which God brought about the good of saving many people. And so while on the one hand, it's very true to say that, you know, God is like working the, the elements of history in, you know, maybe like natural events and stuff like that, but I think it's also true to say that our own actions are part of the means that God uses to work good in this world. And so the encouragement that I would give you in this time of, you know, whatever it is that is like challenging about the situation that you're in, whatever the suffering is, um, you know, even if it's something like, you know, you're feeling down about politics or perhaps your church isn't meeting currently and that you, you feel the weight of that separation from your church community. Like my encouragement to you would be spend some time praying and asking the Lord, like, what is the good that you can be doing? Like, how can you be acting as God's agent in the world to help bring about his good intentions? You know, perhaps that is reaching out to your fellow Christians, your, your fellow believers. Perhaps that is working to be faithful in your job or among your family. Um, so the, the encouragement here is just to, uh, you know, recognize that God is working all of these things for good and that Part of that is you have the opportunity to participate in that working, worked out good intention as well. I think everyone's feeling like one way or another, 2020 is a bit of a turning point in history. <laughs> um, and uh, I think a, a verse like Romans 8, 28 is a, is a great verse for times like these. There's lots of uncertainty. Um, I think it's everyone kind of understands that things are not going to be great economically for a while. There's going to be a lot of suffering. Um, and I think at a time like this, uh, it really <laughs> let's be the kind of radicals who believe that, you know, when you're walking down the street, nodding at your neighbor or flashing a smile or whatever is actually making a positive difference in the world. Right. Like 
just the little things that that we bring to the world as salt and light, right? The preaching of the gospel, certainly, but also just the good works, like you were saying, John, um, you know, encouraging the the downhearted, right? If you got a friend who you know is really struggling, um, you know, with less human interaction than normal, like just reach out to them, you know, like do it now. <laughs> Think about somebody you know who who could use an encouraging phone call, even, right? I think I think that's that is one of the ways that uh, I think we're going to be salt and light in this very big turning point year. It's not going to be through, you know, politics. It's not going to be through the halls of Congress. It's going to be through, you know, loving one another, loving your neighbor, the classic things God calls us to, which are much less, you know, crazy. And they're, they're far less revolutionary than you would think they are, but they actually are far more revolutionary than we think they are. Amen. And I guess one kind of final uh, application point is, you know, something that I said earlier, you know, that suffering is, it's not a bug in the system. It's not like, uh, you know, God is, you know, up there somewhere being like, oh, shoot, I can't believe this suffering ended up into the system. That's, that's not what I was planning on. Um, it's like suffering, it's, it's a feature. It is, it, it's part of the intention of this life that we suffer and that we go through this suffering. And so my encouragement to you is, if you are suffering right now, if, you know, say you were laid off from your job and you're still out of work and, you know, you're wondering like, Lord, you know, wh why, why is it that I still can't provide for my family? Why is it that I, you know, am still in this place? You know, know that the Lord hasn't forsaken you. The Spirit is in you right now. And as you are groaning and struggling and suffering right now, the Spirit is groaning with you. He is perfecting your prayers to God. And the Spirit knows what God's intentions are. The Spirit knows the good that God is working for you. And so I would encourage you to lean into that trust in your Lord, that he is good. He is working good for you, and he will care for you. Well, of course, to quote the Apostle Peter, there are some things Paul says which are hard to understand, and we've looked at some of those things today in a very difficult-to-understand book, that of Romans. But Paul and the rest of the biblical authors also said plenty of things which are, in fact, quite easy to understand. And to close off this episode, we're actually going to read to the end of Romans 8, which is kind of including the same ideas as we've been talking about, um, but in a more devotional and inspirational way. Um, less like heady theological sense. So we're going to read the, the rest of Romans 8 um, and just sit for a moment in its inspirational and just courageous like, like tone. So here goes, starting from verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What, then, shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? 
As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, in the immortal words of the philosopher Porky Pig, that's all, folks. We thank you for joining us. If anything you heard today has sent you into a blind theological rage, feel free to lambast us on social media. Alternatively, if you liked what you heard, if you have Bible verses you want us to break down, or if you have questions you think we can answer, you can send them to thejohn315podcast at gmail.com. That's thejohn315podcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.